Today we're in part four of a five-part series called Church Sucks When. And today we're going to take a look at Church Sucks When Leaders Don't Practice What They Preach. Now tragically, unfortunately, a lot of us have been disappointed by leaders. Uh, we have respected or loved someone and they uh, dropped the ball, they failed, they morally failed, they financially failed, they did something that, that uh, was devastating to them and in the process perhaps to the kingdom, to God, to the church and in some ways even to us. Uh, years ago, some of you may remember this guy uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, Jimmy Swaggart was uh, quite well known, a lot of circles, and uh, some of you have no idea who he is, that's, that's okay, but this was uh, a long time ago, and yet I still remember the pain and the sorrow I had for him and for his church and for the kingdom when that took place. Another guy more recently, more recent history, about 2006, Ted Haggard, who was a pastor of a mega church in Colorado, and a gifted author and teacher and a pastor who uh, fell again, morally failed, and uh, devastated uh, his church and his family, and, and it was uh, a tragic event. And then, of course, um, you know, Spokane's got a lot of Catholics, and we all know of the Catholic priest and the, the stories that uh, unfortunately abound out there about, about their failures as well. If you've been disappointed, if you've been hurt by someone in your life, a leader, then you've probably experienced in some measure uh, the emotion of sadness, a broken heart, and ranging all the way probably to anger and, and frustration. And I understand the rumbling that's in our soul at times when we hear these stories. And you're thinking, boy, thanks, Kurt, for bringing that up. That's really depressing. Well, I want to dial up the emotion, the, the feeling, because I relate to it. Most of you know that my uh, dad was a preacher most of the years that I was growing up at home. What you may or may not know is that my dad uh, had more than one moral failure in his life while he was a pastor. And as a kid, uh, I remember the shame, the guilt, the frustration, the anger uh, that I had because of my dad and what he did. I also have had two close friends in my life. One of them was a mentor to me uh, for years, a man that I respected and spoken in my life on a regular basis. And uh, both these guys committed adultery while they were in the ministry. And so again, I don't share that with you to discourage or depress anybody here. But I want you to understand that I understand. If you're sitting there or listening right now and you are thinking, man, uh, you just dialed up all sorts of painful memories for me, I want you to know I get it. I really do understand. Unfortunately, I also have to deal with uh, people outside of the church from time to time who uh, hear the stories and see the news and the stuff plastered all over the, the media and uh, they you know, shake their head and, and point their finger and, and accuse the church and leaders of all being a bunch of uh, messed up charlatans or hypocrites. I was coaching years ago, Park Rose High School. I coached football there and then cross country and track. And uh, I remember one of the guys that I had worked really hard at trying to develop a relationship with, one of the other football coaches. I had befriended him, I had engaged him, I had, had conversations with him about my faith. And he was a renegade. He'd been a part of the church when he was a little boy, but left during junior high, I think. And he knew a lot about the Bible, a lot about God, but he didn't know anything about relationship with God, about relationship with Jesus. And so I took time to, to talk with him, to, 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 to build a relationship with him, to encourage him uh, along his journey in faith. And I will never forget the day we're standing there. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was Portland. It was pouring down rain. No big surprise there. Guys were practicing on the field, and the Jimmy Swagger thing had just hit the news, and he turned to me, and with disgust and, and anger and frustration, he said, you preachers are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And that hurt me, because I didn't like being lumped in the group of 
those preachers, that guy, Jimmy Swagger. But it also discouraged me because I'd worked so hard to try and build a relationship with this guy. Introduction in your outline says this. When church leaders fail, the fallout is felt far and wide. And the primary mission of the church is hindered. When people fail, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, and the worse it impacts the kingdom of God. Now, whether it's a politician or a movie star or a preacher, our culture tends to enjoy dragging others down from the pedestal that we have put them on. I find that interesting. We're the ones that tend to put people there. Isn't that movie star the greatest? Isn't that politician wonderful? Isn't that preacher amazing? That televangelist, that guy. We tend to put them on this pedestal, and then when they fail, we take great pleasure in some sick sort of way in dragging them down. And it just hits the media, and it's everywhere all the time. But when it's a church leader that fails, it often gives people an excuse to reject the gospel, to reject the church, and sadly, to even reject God. It sucks when church leaders fail. So what should we do? How should we handle that when church leaders fail? I'm going to give you some things I want to unpack with you. Here's the first one. Number one, remember that at some level, failure is inevitable for all of us. I want you to remember, when you see failure in those that you respected, loved, they were leaders in your life, and they drop the ball and they blow it, I think it's good for us to come off of our high horse and to pause for a moment and to remember that failure is inevitable for all of us. Now, it might surprise you to hear me say that. Failure is pretty much guaranteed, but it is. And I don't use that as an excuse. And I'm not saying it's no big deal. Of course it's a big deal. I'm also not trying to put some positive spin on this, this thing or this horrible behavior of theirs. I am, however, trying to put this issue of failure in perspective for you. We have all failed. We will all fail. And before we judge others too quickly, before we start casting stones and judging others around us, we need to own our own humanity. I think one of the things we need to do when we see that happen is stop and pause and, and remember, boy, we're all human. As long as we're in these earth suits and on this side of eternity, we will let God, others, and ourselves down from time to time. It is a reality of, you know, life on this planet. And you think, well, that's kind of pessimistic. No, it's not. It's realistic. It's just the way it is while we're in these, these frames, these bodies on this earth. Now, I haven't said all of that. Because some of you are wondering. I can see the nervousness in your face, in your eyes. You need to know that I do not have any secret sin in my life. There are no addictions or destructive bad habits lurking in the shadows. Except maybe my unhealthy love for ice cream. That's probably the only thing that I could own. I'm not a pervert. I'm not a pedophile. And I've never had sex with a prostitute. So relax. But I assure you I'm not perfect. I am far from perfect. At times, my thoughts, my eyes, and my heart betray who I am in Christ. At times, my thoughts, my eyes, my mouth, my heart betrays who I am in Jesus and what he's done for me. And usually, it's my thoughts. That's where I fail more often than not. I think something I shouldn't think. Sometimes, it's my eyes. I look at something I shouldn't look at. But we all fail, and I fail. Now, here's the good news. You're thinking, boy, our pastor's not perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you figure that out by now. But the good news is, I tend to sin less than I used to, and I'm growing and learning. I am. But just like you, I am sometimes just one bad, stupid choice away from disaster. And so I walk with that awareness. And here's my conviction, and here's what I want you to believe today. It's the first bullet under number one. Transparent leadership is trustworthy leadership. Why am I unafraid to own the fact that I'm not perfect and to tell you that? Because it's my conviction deep conviction that transparent leadership is trustworthy leadership. 
The guy or the gal that should make you nervous is the person who acts like they've got it all together. The person who pretends like they're perfect because nobody is. No one is. Now, there's lots of grace in the kingdom of God for imperfection. Yes, there is. But the guy who pretends, the person who pretends to have it all together and doesn't, that's what the Bible calls a hypocrite. And Jesus didn't have a lot of patience with hypocrites. He told his disciples in Matthew 23, verse 2 to 3, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. They're the guys with the position. They have the training. Verse 3, so practice and obey whatever they tell you. But don't follow their example. Why? They don't practice what they preach. Jesus said, practice and obey their teaching, but don't follow their example because they don't practice what they preach. Leaders who don't practice what they preach are pathetic. That's the way Jesus felt. That's the way I feel. And so I want to suggest the model or the example that leaders, pastors, guys like me ought to set is not a model of perfection but a model of radical repentance. Let me say it again. The model I want you to see in my life is not the model of perfection because I ain't that guy, but a model of radical repentance, a guy who owns his stuff, who confesses, who comes to God and cries out to God and says, oh God, please forgive me. Have mercy on me, oh Lord. Leaders who sh that you shouldn't trust are those who pretend to be faultless. And the ones you can trust are those who humbly confess their sins and men and women who quickly repent of their failures. Some of you might be <laughs> a little shocked when Tyndale publishes my book in the fall because it's about 200 pages of confession and, and a lot of stories of my failures and things that I did really wrong, stupid things I did. And, and, and thereby the title of the book is Epic Grace Chronicles of a Recovering Idiot. And, yeah, and that would be me. But I'm not ashamed, afraid. I did have one pastor friend say to me, you know, I don't think this is a good idea that you put all this in a book because people aren't going to respect you. I go, dude, you don't know my church. They know me. They know I'm not perfect. So this is just, I, what I want them to do is, is read this and see what not to do. I want them to see how to be a good repenter. I, you don't have to learn everything the hard way. And so I want you to understand I'm a really good repenter. And I try to practice what I preach. Why? Because transparent leadership is trustworthy leadership. And I hope you will learn from my failures as, mu as much as you might learn from my successes. Now, again, let me quickly say, there are some sins and some mistakes, such as moral or fiscal failure, that would immediately disqualify me from leadership as a pastor in the church, at least for a season of restoration, assuming I repented. There are some things that because of my role, uh, because of my responsibility, that they would immediately disqualify me from leading a church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the author of the book of James, wrote this in James chapter 3, verse 1. He said, my brothers and sisters, most of you shouldn't want to be teachers. Don't aspire to have that role. You know that those of us who teach will be held more accountable. James says, understand that there's a, a level of accountability that those who teach the word of God are held to. Now, we are all held accountable for our actions, every one of us, teachers, pastors, or not. We're all held accountable. And according to Hebrews chapter 12, the Lord will discipline us when we fail. And he doesn't smack us around because he's mad, ticked off, because he's mean. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, it's a great passage. I don't have time to unpack it today. But Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines those whom he loves because he loves you. He's not going to let you get away with stuff. I promise you that. 
Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. It's not just because God's trying to expose you. It's because he loves you. And he wants to bring healing and wholeness. And so God will discipline those whom he loves. All of us. But the Bible makes it very clear that those who teach the word of God will be held more accountable. They will be held to an even higher standard. Not only was Ted Haggard guilty of immorality and adultery, but he was also living a lie. And he no longer met the important qualities the Apostle Paul identified in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where he wrote, an elder, a leader, a pastor, an overseer, must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. Now, those are standards that we all need to meet, by the way. But they are non-negotiable requirements for those who are in positions of leadership in the body of Christ. Live above reproach, faithful to his wife, self-controlled, live wisely, and of good reputation. And so the first thing I want you to understand, no one's perfect, no leader is perfect. Transparent leadership is trustworthy leadership. And the reason why this is a big deal is because it's important that we understand we're all given to this tendency to fail. But when someone fails, let's not just throw stones at them. Let's, let's deal. Let's find a way to deal with it. Which takes me to number two. The second thing, follow the biblical pattern for correction and restoration. Here's the second thing we should do when leaders or anyone fails in our life. Follow the biblical pattern for correction and restoration. How do we handle when leaders let us down? What should our treatment be of leaders or, again, anyone for that matter who fails? Well, here's the first bullet under number two. We need to respond rather than react. Respond rather than react. Again, why? Well, because we all fail. So we don't really have a position to react from anyhow. We're not perfect. But reacting is never a good idea. Reacting is almost always an emotional reply that only complicates a bad situation and makes matters worse. Do not respond out loud. But how did it go the last time you reacted with your spouse or with your children or with your boss? It usually doesn't go very well. Reaction is an emotional reply that usually makes things worse, not better. And that's why it's best to respond. And respond means pause, think before you speak, pause, give some, some reflection to what's going on, count to 10, count to 1,000, find a way to respond to the situation rather than just react against it. You know, again, I'll be transparent and honest with you. Sometimes the first thing out of my mouth is not very kind and wise when I see somebody do something stupid. And I, God's working on me in this. Sometimes I, in fact, say things that, are, that complicate the situation or make it more hurtful. Long time ago, in a church uh, in Southern California I was part of, I was on staff, and a leader, not one of the pastors, but one of the board members, elders in that church, came to me, and he said, I, I need to talk to you. Okay, great, what's going on? He put his head down, bore a hole in the carpet with his eyes, and said, I, I need to confess to you that I, I, I've committed adultery, I've, I've had an affair. And I wish I could tell you that I responded with kindness and gentleness and grace and mercy. First thing out of my mouth was, how could you be so stupid? Now, have you ever said something and just wish you could go, oh, you just pull those words back and just, you know, start over? Man, because the minute I said that, I knew that I'd wounded him, that i cut him. He already knew he'd done something stupid. He didn't need me to tell him that. And, and it wasn't healing. You know, Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 12, 18. And this is a verse I'm trying to live by. Some of you need to memorize Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The words of the reckless 
cut and pierce and tear people apart and cause pain and death. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. We need to respond rather than react. That's the first bullet. The second bullet under number two is this. Seek to restore the fallen humbly and with grace and mercy. We need to seek to restore them humbly and with grace and mercy. Galatians 6, 1 says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, now I don't know why he doesn't say when someone is caught in sin because that's usually what happens, but Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore, restore, listen, restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Paul says, instead of reacting, restore that person gently. You know, I've said this so many times. Some of you are sick and tired of hearing it, but it's not just about being right. It's always about being relational. Yes, right is better than wrong. Yes, we want to be right. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. But it's not just about being right. It's always about being relational. Why? Because that's the way God is. God is relational. Here's a little insight. God is a 1,000% right all the time. True or false? Boy, that was overwhelming. (laughs) The answer is... True. Yeah, God's always right. And yet God is always relational. God is always a healer, a restorer, a renewer. He's seeking to redeem. He's seeking to restore relationship. He's not just about being right with him. He doesn't just smack us down and kick us out. He wants to restore and restore us to relationship. God wants to bring healing. And that ought to be our heart as well. It's not just about being right. It's about being relational. When I fell away from the Lord, and again, some of you have heard this story. It's in the book. But in my early 20s, I fell away from God. I was very angry and bitter at him. Uh, The reason for that is basically because I experienced some things that I didn't understand, didn't like, didn't want to go through. And I was angry, and I was bitter at God, and I took it out on him. And basically, I told God, forget you. I'm out of here. I'm done. And I used language that I could not use in church toward God. And I was very, very bitter, very angry. And I walked away from him. I walked away from the church. I walked away from relationship with people in the kingdom and even began to walk away from my own wife who loved Jesus the whole time. In the midst of that, a friend of mine, a guy that I used to work with, I had been a youth pastor on a staff at a church and, and a, a guy that I knew, his name was Steve Overman. Steve had come down to Southern California where I was and I was working in the banking industry and he was going to school. He was going to Fuller Seminary. And Steve sought me out. He heard what was going on from my other friends and from my wife. And he reached out to me. And the first time he said, hey, can we go to lunch together? I was like, no. You know, but second time I was like, no. And finally I broke down and said, yeah. And I really expected that he was just going to blast me, that he was just going to read me the riot act and give me all sorts of grief. And for weeks we got together. And for weeks he listened to me just emotionally puke all over him and be vile and mean and ugly and harsh about God, about the church, about everything else. And Steve would just sit there and he just listened to me and he loved me and he he responded to me and he sought to restore me. Now the day came when he had earned the right to be heard and he spoke the truth in love. The moment came when he dealt with my sin and, and brought me, confronted me with it. But he'd earned the right to be heard, and he always was. He practiced Galatians 6.1. He was always gentle. gentle, Gently sought to restore me in the process. When someone fails, let's seek to restore them humbly and with grace and mercy. Here's the next bullet under number two. 
Let's repent of anything in our lives that is messed up by sin. I think one of the things that needs to happen when someone around us, leader or not, fails, is that we need to stop and, and do a little heart check. We need to look at our own lives, and before we start worrying about the log in theirs, maybe, you know, or the, the splinter in theirs, worry about the log in our own eye. And we need to repent of anything in our own lives that is messed up by sin. When Paul wrote Galatians 6.1 that we should watch ourselves because he doesn't want us to be tempted, he says watch yourselves. He's saying that we are all equally vulnerable to temptation and failure. And so when a leader or a friend is, is, is fallen and, and caught in sin, it ought to be a wake-up call for us. It ought to jar us from our, our complacency, any complacency we might have about sin in our own lives. Because we ought to say, Lord, I'm broken by what's happened with him. But God, I so don't want to be that person. I don't want to go there. What's in me that needs to change right now? When I was on my way back and being restored, I finally responded. And, and uh, Steve and, and uh, others were very instrumental in that healing process in my life. Uh, we went to church on the way. And Jack Hayford was the pastor. It was a time of healing for me, for my relationship with God, even for my relationship with my wife. The uh, young adults pastor was a guy named Scott Bauer. And Scott and Becky, they loved us and, and uh, were very, again, instrumental in our healing. But while I'm going through my own healing and restoration at this church uh, in Southern California, the worship pastor of that church, his name was John, uh, was found out that, that he'd been having multiple affairs, not just one, but multiple affairs with people in the church. I remember when I heard it, I couldn't believe it. No way, not John. I mean, he was a hero to me. A guy that I, I admired, respected. He and his wife, Naomi, were anointed and powerful. And I was just devastated by, by the reality that here's this guy that I had put on a pedestal had now fallen. But I tell you, one of the things I definitely remember happening and experiencing when I, when I heard about that and sat in church, just like you're sitting now, and heard that news, and it was announced, and Pastor Jack told the church. I mean, people wept and they bawled, but I remember thinking, God, if there's anything in me, that would ever take me down that road, please, Jesus, please don't let me go there. I so don't want to be that guy. Be careful. First Corinthians 10, Paul wrote this. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And it's a sobering verse. Paul says, if you think you've got it all together, if you think you're beyond fa failure, beyond making a mistake, he says, if you think you are standing firm, the admonition of the Scriptures, be careful that you don't fall. You see, a wise man or woman will learn from the failures of others. They will learn. And the way we learn is by looking at our own lives and saying, I see this in this guy. I saw that happen. What in me might lead me down that path as well? What needs to change in me? And here's another little insight and we'll move on. You don't have to learn everything the hard way. You don't. You can learn from the mistakes of others. And it happens as you do some self-evaluation and do a heart check on yourself. Okay, last thing, number three. Here's the last thing I'm going to talk about. When a leader fails, we need to guard our heart. Guard your heart against cynicism and distrust. Guard your heart against cynicism and distrust. When we've been wounded and disappointed by someone we once loved and respected, it's easy to lump all leaders into the same category. It's easy to lump everybody into that same place where we just hold them in that same group of boy, I can't believe they did this, and, 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 I, and they've let me down, and we'd stop trusting leaders. And I want to make a statement to you right now that I want you to write it down if you're taking notes. Cynicism is sinful. 
It is. It is not what God wants for us. It's not healthy, and it's not being godly. God's never cynical, and he doesn't want you to be cynical. He doesn't want you to be distrusting. He doesn't want that to be your default. Now, I know that trust is earned. I know that if and when trust is lost, that it takes time and a track record to regain that. It takes a track record of faithfulness to win that trust back. I understand that. But our tendency should be to trust first rather than to doubt first. Paul wrote, whatever is good, report, admirable, noble, whatever is praiseworthy, focus. Fix your mind on those things. Our tendency should be to trust first rather than to doubt first. And the Bible is clear that we need to trust leadership. You see, the reason why this is a big deal is if you don't trust leaders, you won't follow leaders. If you don't trust a pastor, you're not going to follow a pastor. Now, obviously, we don't follow them into sin. Christianity is not a cult. And we don't blindly obey our leaders and just, you know, go wherever they go doing the same stupid things they might be doing. But we do, and I'm going to unpack some scripture passages for you in just a moment. We do want to follow them as they follow Jesus. Key phrase there, as they follow Jesus. And we should not let our default attitude be to treat our leaders with suspicion and doubt. Because if we don't trust them, we won't follow them. Here's a few passages. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Just follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example, Paul said, as I follow the example of Jesus. Follow me as I follow him. Philippians 3.17 says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Some of you, you know, your, your seamstress says, you sew, my wife used to sew quite a bit, and I always used to watch her pull out these patterns, and she laid out the material, and she'd use the pattern to cut the material. And you follow the pattern to get where you need to be. Some of you guys are going, I don't get it. All right, you're building a birdhouse or whatever. And, and, and you, there's, a, there's some, whether you're looking at a picture or following directions, which most of us don't do very well, you're following something. And the idea is it's a pattern. It's a model. This is what you want to do. This is what you need to do. Do this, and you'll get there. And the Bible says, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives. After mine, Paul said, after me as a leader. And learn from those who follow, other leaders who follow my example. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 7 said, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider, remember, and then follow them. Imitate their faith. It is humbling. And honestly, it is sobering for me to say to you, Follow me as I follow Jesus. I don't say that with arrogance or pride in any way. And sometimes that means follow me and become a really good repenter like I am. But I, I need you to hear this, that for you to become what God wants you to be in large part, not all everything's involved in this, but in large part it boils down to you following and imitating the life of the leaders, the pastors God has put into your life. They're there for you as a pattern of godliness. They're not always going to get it right. I won't always get it right. But I want you to guard your heart. I want to encourage you to guard your heart and to not let the tragic moral failures of some hinder you from following others, godly men and women in the, in the body of Christ. I'll tell you one last story, and then I'll wrap it up. Years ago, um, when I was pastoring a church in Portland, Oregon, a lady came to our church name was Barbara, and um, 
first time I met her, I could tell there was something wrong. Not with her, but between us. Now, I never met the woman before. Never talked to her, didn't know her from Eve. I had no relation with her at all. But there was obviously tension just in our first encounter as her friend introduced me to her friend. I didn't know why. Sometimes it happens. Everybody doesn't like me. But that's okay. And so I just, I loved her. I said, hey, I'm glad you're here. And she came back. In fact, she started becoming a regular attender. And eventually she uh, became very involved. And her story was that she had been a prodigal. She wandered away from God uh, 10 years prior to the time she showed up at our church called Skyline in Portland. 10 years prior to that, what had happened is she'd actually had an affair with the pastor of the church she was attending. And because of that, and it get, got exposed, uh, and because of what happened, that whole situation, she was wounded by the pastor who uh, repented of that sin and returned to his wife. She was wounded by that. She was wounded by the church. I don't know all of what happened. I, I wasn't there. But what I could gather and what I did understand is that the church, in her opinion, had really treated her very harshly. And I do know that they excommunicated her. They just said, you're not welcome here anymore. And so when she got wounded by the pastor, who was her ex-lover, wounded by the church, she just walked away. She gave up on God, gave up on church for 10, almost 10 years, had nothing at all to do with church or with God, just completely walked away. Through some struggle and trials and difficulty in her life, she finally realized, I do need God, I need him. And her friend said, why don't you come to church? Her first reaction was, no way. Again, not quite the word she used. I'm like, no, I'm not going to go. Finally, she came. And you can understand the tension between her and me because it dialed up all sorts of emotions for her. Past failure, past rejection, past woundedness, and it was still very present in her heart. Well, I got to watch the Lord heal her and restore her to relationship with him, relationship with the body, and ultimately, eventually, relationship even with me as her pastor. But it took a long time because she didn't trust leaders anymore. Some of you are listening. You're sitting right here or you're listening, and you are, you're that person. You've been wounded deeply by the church. Maybe not a moral failure. Maybe something else happened. And it's hard for you to trust leadership. It's hard for you to engage. It's hard for you to hear pastors. Sometimes it might even be hard for you to hear me because you've been so deeply wounded by something in your past. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you today. Cynicism is sinful. Repent of that. Get healed of that and learn to trust again the godly men and women, the godly men and women that he's put into your life and follow them as they follow Jesus. Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful for your grace and your mercy and your goodness in our lives. That you care for us, that you correct us, but that you always love us. And I know, Lord, that there are some... um, that have been deeply wounded, and I've stirred the pot this morning. This has made it, it, it evident to them that there's some woundedness in their life and some distrust, and I pray, God, today you'd begin to heal that in their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to uh, look to you and to find the wholeness that they need to trust again in you and to trust leaders and to follow them as they follow Jesus. But bring wholeness and healing, Lord, to their hearts. God, all of us need more of you, more of your grace, and, and, and I just pray that you would overwhelm us with your goodness and your, your care for us. 
And in fact, right now, just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. If you're here today and you've not yet begun your life as a Christ follower, you've not started your journey as a disciple of Jesus, or maybe you've wandered off and you've been far from him and you know it's time to come home. You've been that prodigal son or daughter. It begins with a choice. You make a choice to say yes to God. Just like that song we sang earlier. You say, God, I surrender my life to you. I need you. I need a Savior. I confess my sin. You own it. And you ask for his grace and his forgiveness. And if you're ready to do that today and you know that's what you want, I'm not going to single you out or embarrass you, but I'm going to pray right now a prayer. Let this prayer be a pattern, a model for you. And just make these words your words in your heart. Make this your prayer right now. Father, forgive me. I have failed. And I've sinned, and I I see my need. I need a Savior. I need your grace, your mercy in my life. I need your forgiveness. And so I ask you right now, come, and and I, I, I give you all that I am. I surrender my life to you. Come into my heart and my life. I want to be your child. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Right here, right now, I choose to give my all to you. Now, if that's you and that's what you want in your own heart, just say, yeah, yeah, God, that's, that's what I need. The Bible says the moment you say yes to him, you begin that journey. He comes in to you, into your, your soul, your spirit, and your heart, to your life, and he t- begins to transform you from the inside out. He empowers you to do what you could never do on your own. And you are beginning, as you said yes to him, that journey of faith as a disciple of Jesus. Lord, for those making that decision, I pray that you just seal in their hearts, burden in their hearts right now, that they belong to you, and that you're going to do amazing things in them because of your goodness. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with one last song today, and Usher's going to come. We're going to pass the bags. If you want to drop that communication card in, please do that. If you're a guest today, don't feel obligated to give, but let's give to support what God's doing here. This last song, is that your name? I love this song. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago in a sermon. Uh, that we would do this, because I love this song, but we would explain it. There's a phrase, Yahweh, in the chorus. And some of you are new, you have no idea what Yahweh means. Yahweh is basically, essentially, is when you see it translated in the Old Testament, it's always translated the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D. You'd see the word Lord. It's essentially saying Lord. The, the Jews, they wouldn't, in response and in, in respect for God, wouldn't use the name of God. And so they, they had um, an unpronounceable word that they would use, and we transliterate it as Yahweh, and again, it's translated in our Bibles as Lord. But as we sing this song, I want you to sing to Yahweh, to the Lord Jesus, and let's worship him as we give, and I'll come back and wrap it up. A couple of things before you go today. Uh, if you need prayer, pray to me be down front. Some of you have been fighting some things, and or you've been wounded. You need somebody just to pray with you. Please come down. There's communion on both sides of the room. If you'd like to take that either by yourself or with your friends or family, back on the tables uh, as you walk out. It's a white envelope that says for new believers on. It's got a Bible, some material to get you started in your walk with Jesus. Please stop and pick one of those up and tell someone. If you begin your life today as a Christ follower, let me know. Let somebody know we want to walk with you. Go enjoy the football today. Be safe. Be sound. Go walk with Jesus this week. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.